someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, coming at you from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, great to be here with you today. Uh, again, talking about cybersecurity issues, uh, a lot of great content uh, coming towards you here shortly. We're going to talk about uh, cybersecurity policy and things the Department of Homeland Security can do to encourage the private sector to help develop more security technologies to protect you, your family, your kids, your businesses, uh, taking some of your questions uh, about exploits to Microsoft Word and Amazon uh, and things that are uh, attacking you today and things that you've seen the past couple of days. And uh, we'll wrap up with a story about uh, another criminal that got indicted, uh, a system administrator for a trading firm who wrote his own malware to steal trade secrets from a Wall Street investor firm, so potentially uh, billions of dollars of loss uh, of intellectual property there. But I wanted to start out and lead the story or lead the show with uh, news that you saw the past uh, couple of days uh, and over the last weekend uh, that we didn't get the chance to talk about. So last Friday uh, in Spain, there was a Russian hacker who's taken his wife and his kids on vacation, decided to take him to Barcelona. Well, it turned out there was a sealed indictment on him. So when he gets to Spain, he is arrested by Spanish authorities and he's pending extradition back to the United States. You probably saw news of this because the Russian embassy and RT, which is short for Russia Times, suggested that this person had something to do with the election hacking, uh, election related hacking of last year. So uh, his name is uh, Pyotr Levishov or Russian for Peter uh, Levishov. He has been engaged in spamming and various online scams for almost 20 years. The first uh, reports of his activity date from 1999. If you took a look in your spam folders of your email uh, over the last week, you know, not currently, but, you know, from a week or two ago, odds are you'd see various uh, online drug scams, right? You know, get Viagra, get this. Uh, his usual MO was uh, Canadian Healthcare and Mall, I believe. So getting Canadian prescription drugs sent in because theoretically their uh, their prices are regulated, so drug prices are much lower in Canada, uh, and ship them here to the United States. Of course, that's a scam. It's an illegal. Uh, you're probably not getting high-quality products. Occasionally, it would deliver malware, uh, infect computers, uh, and do kind of pump-and-dump stock scams where he says, hey, this stock is ready to explode and it's a penny stock on some off trading market hoping that you know somebody sitting at home will put in a few thousand dollars of a penny stock to bump up prices and basically scam money that way that's what he's been known for 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 about two decades but one of the most prolific spammers in the world been on the top 10 list for many many years so has been known uh, even by name mentioned in other previous indictments of people that uh, uh, were captured and arrested and prosecuted in the United States. 
So he was arrested in the previous week on this sealed arrest warrant. I don't really know or understand, you know, why the Russians were trying to say this is election hacking or somebody related to uh, election-related compromises. But it was him, the Russian embassy, or I should say it was his wife who suggested this in the Russian embassy. Uh, and that's what the media ran with. Often, the United States is kind of bound to follow certain rules of conduct. When there's a sealed indictment, they can't talk about it. So when Russia goes out and says something like this, you know, the FBI can't stand up and say, no, that's, that's not what, uh, what it was about, because it would compromise that sealed indictment. Eventually, they did make a statement. But Russia continues to engage in various subtle disinformation uh, attacks, and they rely on the ability that they can say whatever they want but our government has to be more reticent because we follow rules and the rule of law and proper conduct. So that's things to pay attention to when you see these no, uh, these news stories, uh, especially when they hit the, hit on the weekend. Uh, you know, the uh, Russian embassy leaked this, and, and we started seeing it in Reuters and RT on Sunday, last Sunday. The arrest, however, is big news, uh, and I wanted to focus on that a little bit. Most of these criminals can operate for long periods of time. Uh, they develop a sense of complacency that they really don't ever have to worry about getting arrested uh, or uh, face the consequences of their actions. Uh, and I know me personally, some of the investigations I've been involved with take years and not infrequently end not because we've arrested somebody but because – there's just nothing more to do. We know who it is. We know where they are. But they never leave a country that they can be extradited from. In this case, uh, Levishov decided he wanted to take a vacation to a NATO country of Spain. Uh, I don't really blame him for that. I've been to the Russian Federation a couple of times. It's a nice enough place. But I think if my wife wanted to take a vacation to the beach, uh, I'll probably go to Spain and not the Black Sea. So uh, he comes over, and that's how he gets picked up. So it was part of presumably a long-running campaign, an investigation into his activities. Part of this also involved an interesting use of law enforcement's ability to take over criminal infrastructure. This is known uh, as a Rule 41 warrant or Rule 41 action. So the details of that have been released. But in essence, what law enforcement, the FBI, decided to do is, hey, you know what? We're going to arrest this guy, but we want to make sure none of his associates, his friends, his business partners are able to use his criminal infrastructure to send all of this spamming uh, that we, we see. And there are tens, if not hundreds of thousands of machines that were infected by his malware. And really all of his malware would do is, hey, send this email to 10,000 people, 100,000 people, a million people, which is kind of the service that he was in. So a lot of infected machines are out there controlled by uh, these malicious servers. So the FBI went to the courts asking for authority under Rule 41 to take over this criminal infrastructure so that nobody else could use it. Uh, there is some degree of controversy uh, of using Rule 41 powers uh, because people are concerned, you know, the FBI, uh, I mean, it, it sounds like the FBI is hacking things. In this case, it's using legal authority basically to take things over, uh, in essence, to protect people. In this case, right, no real controversy of the authority, uh, but a lot of people are concerned that this might lead to uh, other more inappropriate uses. But that's certainly a tool in the tool chest that uh, is relatively new. I think this is the very first real big public action involving uh, Rule 41 warrant.
So there's a lot of interesting aspects to the story. Unfortunately, the most interesting aspects, the criminal indictment uh, and his trial, those remain under seal. Um, They haven't been discussed by the Department of Justice uh, and probably all will come out over the course of a trial, but he still has to be extradited from Spain back to the United States uh, to face our criminal justice system. So uh, big news that you saw uh, over the last week, uh, some of which was simply deception uh, by the Russian government for reasons unknown. But the frequency of arresting these people is actually very rare, which is why uh, cybercrime generally is such a growing problem if it takes years to arrest somebody. Often they're operating in countries that don't cooperate with U.S. law enforcement. So even if there were an arrest warrant and a request to extradite, that country would never honor those those kind of arrangements. So uh, online and the Internet-connected age, right, crime, uh, in fact, does pay. So there are a lot of efforts to change that, ramping up prosecutorial uh, efforts to try to prosecute these people uh, and do what we can. And it's a subject of international negotiations between China and Russia and others to ramp up cybersecurity cooperation. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of those issues here in the coming weeks. So big news, probably one of the world's most prolific spammers, uh, certainly in the top 10 list, uh, being picked up by law enforcement and uh, no longer able to engage in criminal behavior. We're going to have the Heritage Foundation on next, talking about what our government, what Congress can do to help the private sector incentivize more tools and more products to protect you, the consumer, against uh, attackers uh, and malware authors like Pyotr Levershov and many of the others that we'll talk about. So stay tuned for more after this break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Radio Today with John Bambanek, and we will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. Welcome back. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Uh, changing gears from uh, arresting Russian hackers in Spain. Uh, now we're joined by David and Sarah from the Heritage Foundation. Uh, they uh, have a report out uh, recently about using the Safety Act and applying that to cybersecurity. So talking uh, a little bit about uh, what our country can do to keep our consumers, our businesses safe uh, from cybercrime and espionage. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So let's talk first. What exactly is the Safety Act? This is existing legislation, correct? Yeah, so the Safety Act, it's an acronym. It stands for Support the Anti-Terrorism by Fostering Effective Technologies Act. That's why you use the acronym, right? Yes. The Safety Act is a a piece of uh, legislation that was passed back really early in the Department of Homeland Security's history that basically said, how can we encourage the private sector to create technologies 
incentivize people to buy them, and hopefully these technologies will help prevent um, terrorism. They help mitigate the effects of terrorism. If it's successful, they detect terrorism. How can we get these types of technologies to be created and bought mm-hmm. uh, and sold in the general marketplace? The idea that we had is, well, right now this is largely used on terrorism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we use the same incentive structure to help encourage cybersecurity tools, technologies, uh, processes to be created and adopted in the general marketplace. I know uh, as somebody who works in a security company myself, I mean, for recent years, what, 20 to 40 percent growth in terms of overall spending of, of dollars. There's a lot of new companies out there. But, you know, terrorism, cybersecurity are, you know, not exactly the same thing. Kind of in concrete mm-hmm. terms, what were you proposing, right? As somebody who's you know works for a cybersecurity company, uh, helps startups, right? What would this, in concrete terms, do for me to incentivize uh, me investing uh, in developing something new? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, what the Safety Act would do is it allows you, the the company developing a product, to have your product designated or certified, basically two different levels of protection against liability. So someone mm-hmm. can't sue you because, you know, your product didn't do, you know, didn't stop everything um, from, from getting through. We want to incentivize things that, because, you know, security is never 100%, so we want to encourage products to get out there. Um, and so we provide some sort of protection mm-hmm. for you, the developer, to say, we know that this product will do some good. But we recognize that you're, you you might be concerned about putting your product out there if it then ha- doesn't you know do it doesn't a hundred percent stop an attack and then someone might say ah oh, you know what that product didn't work um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sue that company because it, it 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 didn't work like I wanted it to um, and so it helps provide some protection to the producers of these mm-hmm. technologies that will hopefully incentivize them to make it and sell it. And the, the reason we do this is because we think that broad adoption of these technologies um, would be better for uh, the general population. You say there's a, a certification and designation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the steps to get that, right? Is it, is it I fill in a form and I, is it rubber stamped? I mean, what do I have to prove to earn these liability protections? You do have to go through a, a process with the Department of Homeland Security. So, I, you know, this isn't as, as you know, I think as easy as just um, be having something rubber stamped. Uh, they are going to, I think, look at the product to, to make sure that it does seem to be able to have some success in, in defeating um, terrorism or helping mitigate a cyber attack. It's a balance you have to strike. You don't want just any product being developed. But you also don't want to make it so hard um, that, you know, no one's able to do it. So far, we've had, you know, hundreds of, of mm-hmm. different technologies receive a designation or a certification. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's clear that companies are developing products and, and seeking out these protections. Uh, so I think, you know, from, from what we can tell, DHS has sought that right balance. The reason I bring it up, having been doing this for two decades, is you know there's a lot of new companies out there that are basically snake oil salesmen, of, mm-hmm. you know, and and giving them a liability shield to sell vaporware. I don't think makes a lot of sense, you know, sure. a liability shield for somebody who's doing good work because there is no security solution that's 100% has some merit. So you know, I don't know how you necessarily measure A from B because there's a lot of shenanigans that can be played in the startup industry. 
Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that is always going to be a challenge. But first and foremost, you know, in the minds of, of DHS, I think they are they are looking to make sure, like I said, this is they are credible products. Is that gonna? Are they going to get everything perfect all the time? You know, I don't think so. But I think the track record that it's had so far um, with regard to uh, terrorism is that I think everyone is very believes that the, it is operating. I think as it should, and that it is getting that that balance right. Okay, fair enough. So, is this uh, your proposals? been submitted this legislation i kind of where where are you at in the process you know where can yeah. you look for more yeah so right now i think we're just anywhere in the ideas phase we okay. are publishing we, we publish this as a paper to suggest this as you know right now it only applies to terrorism that right mm-hmm. now if something applies if something in the terrorism world happens um people are you know can get these protections uh technically the, the law as written could be you you could make it look like it covers cyber, but you know the the recommendation we make is that we should have legislation explicitly say sure. that we could, this covers cyber products. Some cyber products are already covered, by the way, so we know that it can work. But explicitly expand this to cyber and change some of the authorities to make it a little bit more cyber specific. Um, and by the way, you don't you don't have to change too much in the law; it's just some, some tiny changes to basically say. Uh, to to, basically, to accomplish the goal that we're after here. Um, so, yeah, we're in the ideas phase. We're just trying to, you know, promote this as an idea, a very simple way to get the private sector more involved, to give them, you know, to, to, to really put them back, I think, in the driver's seat as a, a small way to, to, to maybe take the focus a little bit off what the government always can do to help to help the American people be more cybersecure and maybe focus on the private sector and what they can do. Sure. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. We're coming here towards the end of our segment. We've been talking to David and Sarah, a cybersecurity policy analyst with the Heritage Foundation. You can uh, see more at heritage.org. Thank you for joining us today, David. Thank you. Coming at you from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, great to be here with you today. Uh, again, talking about cybersecurity issues. If you would like to hear more, get in contact with us. Find our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash cybersecradio. You can find us on Twitter at Cybersec Radio and my personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. And for questions, if you want to email your questions and have them answered during our social media feature, email at Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. Stay tuned. We'll have some more great content here after this short break. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Stay tuned. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. You're listening to John Bambanek, the most trusted name in cybersecurity. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. We just heard from David and Sarah Heritage Foundation talking about how Congress can make some tweaks to existing legislation to encourage cybersecurity vendors uh, and inventors and entrepreneurs to make better products. Uh, you probably noticed one of my questions was very geared specifically to how do we avoid giving designation and support to snake oil salesmen. One of the things that uh, I've noticed working in this industry, you know, we have major trade conferences just like every other industry does uh, to where there was, I, I want to say the last one in February had 1,400 different cybersecurity companies represented out there, all of which are selling slight tweaks and variations on each other. Few uh, have really good products and really good people. A lot uh, are just kind of repackaging tools and solutions and data that's already out there. The kind of cynical expression that uh, that me and some of my friends have in the industry is these companies don't really need to outsmart the attackers. They just need to outsmart their customers. So there's a lot of uh, not great products out there. Uh, you know, they, they won't compromise you. They're not going to threaten your security. They're just you know, charging you money for uh, things that aren't particularly valuable. And the concern I have, right, with this legislation and a lot of the focus that our policymakers uh, look at, they're looking at terrorism, they're looking at espionage, they're looking at uh, billion-dollar breaches of uh, trading companies. We'll talk a story about that here uh, in a little bit. There's not a lot of attention paid to how are we going to solve security for the consumer? How are we going to protect people in their homes against hackers? People are trying to steal their financial information. People who are trying to compromise them so they can steal secrets from their employers, right? Because until we solve that problem, we're not really tackling truly the cybersecurity issue. So that's certainly a focus that I have. Um, part of the reason I have the show, but uh, a lot of what I try to do is to get information and tools to uh, people who are consumer-facing to protect them at, at their homes uh, and see if we can really start tackling uh, this issue uh, and really changing the game for how this is played. Got a question on cybersecurity? Ask Bambanek. Really? You sure about that? Every week we have a feature. We take your questions from Facebook, Twitter, email of what you want to know about cybersecurity, how you can protect yourself uh, from criminals uh, and various threats you face online, what's on your minds. If you have questions that you want asked uh, and answered uh, on this show, you can go to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash cybersecradio. You can find us on Twitter at cybersecradio and my personal Twitter handle at at Bambanek and email at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com mail.com j-o-h-n-b-a-m-b-e-n-e-k radio at gmail.com so first up john asked i read a story about a microsoft word hack how serious is it and what can i do to protect myself so what you heard about recently and it was uh last tuesday that microsoft patched a critical vulnerability in microsoft word actually it was an office generally and what this would do is that if people sent you a document, uh, it would execute code on your machine. So it could download malware uh, if it abused this vulnerability, right? So every software, every piece of software may have uh, weaknesses in how they were developed that allow attackers to do uh, deploy exploits 
to do things. Usually it's to install malware on your machine. This particular exploit was was pretty serious. Uh, it was first reported to Microsoft in October. Why it took so long to get it fixed, I don't have a good answer for. But we were seeing exploitation of this in the wild. So people were using this vulnerability before Microsoft had actually released the patch. So some of the people behind it were you know, people engaging in espionage on behalf of a government, right? The CIA hacking Russia, the Russia hacking the CIA or whatever, right? It was used by those kind of actors uh, for espionage, which probably doesn't apply to anybody listening to the show. But shortly before uh, the patch was released on Tuesday, the weekend before, we started seeing conventional criminal operators, right? Uh, the people who are sending those fake uh, postal service or USP, uh, UPS notifications to your email, things of that sort. We're using that uh, to exploit consumers. So it became a very big deal very quickly. The most important thing you can do is apply those patches uh, once they're released. The default behavior in Microsoft is to reboot the second Wednesday uh, of every month after those patches are applied. Keep that setting. Make sure the patches are automatically put in. If for some reason your machines are not patched automatically, uh, manually go in to Windows Update. Get those things applied. Another important thing to keep in mind, criminals are sending malicious documents all the time. And uh, these documents, the intent is to infect your computer with something. But almost always it relies on you doing something first, right? So here, take a look at this document. Oh, there's a pop-up that shows enable macros. Well, that allows code to run. So always be careful about opening documents from people you don't know. Always take a look. Hey, I don't know this person, right? Because there could be exploit code there. Uh, there is a great feature how Microsoft developed Office called Protected View. Usually when you download things from the Internet, you know, if you want to interact with a document at all, you've got to enable editing. You'll see a button on top if you avoid pressing that. That really protects you from some of that maliciousness or a lot of it, right? That's why that feature was developed. So always be mindful before clicking Enable Edit to ensure that you're not compromising yourself, keeping that in place. Samantha asked, I'm a high school student. I want to go into cybersecurity. What advice do you have for me? I would say the biggest thing is tinker, right? You've got a laptop. You've got video gaming consoles, whatever it is. Learn how they work. Teach yourself uh, and see uh, you know, if you could figure out how to work. If it breaks, figure out how to troubleshoot it and repair it. Um, almost everybody I know who's really far along in this industry started by – uh, an intellectual curiosity, right? You get a tool, you get a neat, neat little Amazon Echo or uh, another gaming console and Nintendo Switch, you know, playing around with it to see what else you can do with it that wasn't intentional, right? To teach your mind to think outside the box because when criminals look at this stuff, they don't look at uh, a Nintendo Switch and see, hey, you know, I can play video games with that. They see, hey, there's a computing device sitting in somebody's home. How can I use that to get information from them? Can I get credit card information? Is there a webcam that lets me spy on them? So on and so forth. So tinker, pay attention. There's a lot of strong cybersecurity podcasts. We cover things for a general audience, but there are podcasts out there that uh, are geared more towards cybersecurity researchers themselves 
themselves. So certainly take a look for some of those. We'll actually have a cybersecurity uh, podcast and a news service on here in the next segment of CyberScoop. They have a lot of good content. So I would say learn to tinker, learn to troubleshoot. Just be curious about all of these electronic devices that uh, are coming in to your home and figuring out how they do and what you can do that's outside the norm. Get a Raspberry Pi, P-I, which uh, a very small, in essence, computer that lets you play around with any number of projects. So, uh, you know, while you're young, you're in school, learn, play, explore with this kind of stuff and see how it really works and how you can do neat things uh, with that. Again, if you have questions, feel free to reach out to us here at Cybersecurity Today Radio, uh, and we will answer them in this segment. We're going to take a short break. After that, we're going to have on CyberScoop talking about a recent arrest of somebody stealing trade secrets from a Wall Street investment firm. So stay tuned for that. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. So for our last segment, we'll talk a little bit about current events and news, some things that we've got going on uh, in the world of cybersecurity that you need to be aware of. We're joined with a guest from CyberScoop, which is a website and specifically about cybersecurity. And we have Patrick O'Neill, a reporter with them, uh, joining us now. Patrick, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. One of the things that uh, you know we talked about uh, emailing back and forth, setting this up, uh, was a story that uh, that you guys reported on about uh, a malicious insider writing their own malware to hack a financial uh, services company. Wh- uh, what can you tell us about that? What happened there? Yeah, this is an interesting story. So Jen Kwan Jang is a 31-year-old Chinese national uh, who lives in California. He's a systems administrator. He was arrested on Friday morning by the FBI uh, for theft of trade secrets. He now faces uh, 10 years in prison. So he was a systems administrator at KCG Holdings. It's a multi-billion dollar Wall Street firm. Um, it's one of those amazing companies that's uh, unfathomably rich but doesn't get a lot of public notice. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> one of the many. Jang is accused um, in both criminal court uh, and in a civil lawsuit of installing malware and gaining unauthorized access access to a number of systems and accounts of both KCG and its employees. And the heart of it is that he stole both the algorithmic trading models for KCG, which aims to predict markets and then make trades as quickly as possible to make Mm -hmm. as much money as possible, and the code behind the trading platforms that are used to execute the trades and bring in profits, as well as 3 million other files, by the way, the full scope of which isn't really public. But it's kind of hard to imagine that it beats those first two points, because that's the heart of KCG's business, and that's the heart of Wall Street these days, these algorithms and this code. Um, so he, he hasn't made any uh, plea or any public statement. This is really uh, both KCG and Zhang's um, and the FBI side of the story, rather. Mm-hmm. But allegedly, Zhang admitted 
doing this when he was first found out. I don't think he quite realized um, the gravity of the situation. And sure. now, like I said, he faces 10 years in prison. So I think it's dawned on him and he's gone uh, silent. Uh, you know, was there any indication of who he sold or gave this information to or was he kind of hoarding it? So it appears that he was hoarding it, and or at least that there's no indication yet that he sold mm-hmm. it. What happened was is that KCG came under um, talks of an acquisition, which are still ongoing. Mm-hmm. And Jang told his coworkers that he was worried about losing his job. Um, and then in December 2016, as part of a data center migration, he's already a systems administrator at this point. Mm-hmm. He gains further access uh, at this point. That's the springboard he needs. Um, and actually, for four months was operating and stealing uh, from uh, different data repositories from the company unnoticed. And the only reason he got noticed, it appears so far, is that early on a Saturday morning, he logs into another employee's remote desktop account. And you can kind of understand why he does this, right? Early on a Saturday morning, you're not expecting uh, yeah. any wires to get across. Um, but the other employee had just, through dumb luck, it appears, happened to be on. And Two people logging in cause technical problems, um, and the employee reports that. It gets the security team. Alarms were raised. Um, before that, no alarm was raised. He went four months stealing uh, the crown jewels, and no one even realized it. Yeah, no, that's 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 actually you know not a very uh, uncommon thing to happen. It's just uncommon that it's uh, kind of this public. Uh, just because, like I said, I find uh, in what you were talking about the automated trading, high frequency trading is what I assume you're talking about of some of these algorithms. You know, I don't know how much you know you know about that, or you know, I've always found it fascinating that you know you've got people who basically are writing computer programs to uh, take advantage of you know penny changes in stock prices to buy and sell automatically on a computer uh kind of taking the human element out of it and making just mad money uh with just very efficient programs i mean do do, do you know much about that industry or so uh i mean wall street is not my forte yeah, but i enough. do think it's fascinating as to what you're saying because i think that you know the public perception the movies still have uh the human the human fat cats as the heart of uh, of wall street and certainly the people are still there but the the real uh power driving most of these firms are the code right and so to steal to go after and be able to steal uh this stuff it, it, it's hard to overstate how important uh this code is to this company and, you know, the analogy to every company, every uh, Wall Street firm, stealing this code is uh, the crown jewels. It's it's what makes them who they are and what makes the business successful. So it's kind of hard to imagine why he couldn't, um, why he couldn't grasp the gravity of the situation, considering how important this stuff is to this business. You know, it seems like, of course, yeah. they're going to go after you once you steal this stuff. Yeah, well, I say, well, I mean, if a company's got code and scripting to make lots of money, uh, and you can implement that elsewhere, that's uh, you know, that's that's worth a lot of something. And just putting it on a, a thumb drive and putting it in your desk in your house and getting caught with it, probably it just, I said, I find it fascinating that he wasn't selling it or just hoarding it and just not trying to take advantage to what really is very expensive and highly sought after information. If you're in that segment of our economy. What it could have been uh, also is something that happens is that he was, if he's expecting to get fired, he wants to raise his value in the next workplace, right? And so he right. brings this incredible treasure trove, mm-hmm. um, and therefore he becomes a treasure himself and maybe makes money off of it that way. It's not clear yet. He, uh, this, he was only arrested Friday, like I said, and he was only 
started to even raise alarms a week before that. So this is still very early days in terms of investigation, but the evidence was so strong that the FBI was quickly able to uh, build up a case and apprehend him. Yeah, I can't think of any case that I've ever known or been involved with with the FBI making uh, taking action within a week. You know, short of it being yeah. terrorism or, uh, you know, human trafficking or something extreme like that. But for a cybersecurity matter, the time for report to arrest is usually measured in months, if not years. Yeah. And as soon as his uh, as soon as the alarms were raised, the company started to shut down his access and his accounts, which raised thus raised the alarm to Jang himself that something was going on. He started to delete some of uh, allegedly this again, this is the FBI and KCG story. Jang hasn't weighed mm-hmm. in, but he started to delete uh, his own uh, the, the data that he had. But then he called up his superior and his uh, co-workers and mm-hmm. said, this is what I did. Um, and I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. And he tried to explain himself. So that kind of plays into how this yeah. works. And it kind of plays into the old story of, um, you know, whether or not you're innocent or, or guilty, probably just shut up when things start to go bad for you instead yeah. of uh, trying to explain yourself. No, I grew up with a family of lawyers, right? I still got the, you know, the family's voice in my ear. Anything you say and do can and will be used against you. So it will. Uh, yes. So yeah, if you're if you're on the menu, you know, being quiet is uh, is the best option. Though, as an investigator myself, I love it when people talk. So you know, if you really want to talk and make my job easier, please, you know, I've got plenty to do. So you please take work off my plate by by telling us of your misdeeds. <laughs> Yeah, well, as a reporter, I'm on the same. I'm on the same boat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, no, definitely. So no, that's a very interesting story, right? And you know, he wrote his own own malware to do this, correct? Right. So they haven't really released too much information, but yes, he was writing his own malware, and I think he was doing uh, some of the work manually. For instance, mm-hmm. coming in and uh, and and logging into these other employees' accounts and reading their emails. So I think that there's still uh, information yet to be known, uh, sure, obviously, sure, sure. about how exactly this was carried out. But yeah, his own malware was part of the equation. Okay. No, no, that's that's very interesting. I know in a lot of insider attacks, uh, people will often just go to various vendors of malicious tools right some of them operate quite openly uh and you can go online and you know pay in bitcoin or pay by paypal to to download malware or computer viruses probably in the more colloquial term so uh not too often have i seen somebody an insider uh an insider attack or data theft writing their own stuff so that's kind of uh, uh, an interesting avenue there it's an exceptional uh, case, and I'm going to keep a close eye on it to see. I, I'm really excited to see what he does with it. He mm-hmm. may end up just pleading, given the weight of the evidence against him, and we may yeah. never hear really the full scope of it. But if we do, it's going to be really fascinating. No, absolutely. So thank you for being on. Why don't you go ahead and tell us where the listeners can find you and CyberScoop online. You can find me on Twitter at Howell O'Neill. Uh, and you can find CyberScoop at CyberScoop.com. We cover cybersecurity. We cover uh, government and uh, crime, just like stuff you're hearing here. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, Patrick O'Neill, CyberScoop. So that's a great story of you know, of how insiders right, can steal your information, a topic that we've talked about a couple of times. Every company has its own insider information, sales lists, your clients. 
If you would like to hear more, get in contact with us. Find our website at cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash cybersecradio. You can find us on Twitter at cybersecradio and my personal Twitter account at bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. And for questions, if you want to email your questions and have them answered during our social media feature, email at johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. Tune in next week for more great content at Cybersecurity Today Radio. Radio.